Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We are jacked about this episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, we get to take a look at the Hall of Fame career of Peyton Manning. We get to dive into what Bill thinks made him a Hall of Famer. It seems like a fairly obvious question. We all know he was a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the most significant players to ever play in the league, and has left a legacy in his life in football second to none. But it's truly a fun opportunity to see what, in Bill's mind, made Peyton so great. We get a breakdown of a lot of different aspects of Peyton, from the player to the leader to the preparer. We get some insight into how Peyton prepared every week, and I think this is going to be really, really entertaining for you guys, but also really interesting for those of you out there when we've got some young quarterbacks in the audience. And so if this is definitely a window into how you can prepare to be great and how a preparation approach from a mental perspective can truly get you ready for an unbelievable career in the NFL. But before we dive into that, I want to take a minute and talk about one of our favorite sponsors on the show, Bet Online. July is completely underway and it's a great month for sports. If you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you should go to win money today. The NBA Finals are behind us, but MLB is heading into the second half of the season, and there is plenty of action to get involved with. And if you're a football better, there are tons of futures and props you can wager on as well. Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your sports betting needs. So visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's right, a 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off, face-off, or pitch, head over to Bet Online and start playing today. All right, guys, this is truly, truly a fun episode. This is Peyton Manning, the Hall of Famer, on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullman. We are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullian, and as we promised, today begins our look at some of the guys going into the Hall of Fame this year, and we would be remiss if we didn't begin with Peyton Williams Manning, born March 24th, 1976. You know him, you love him, the former 14-time season contributor to the Colts, four times with the Denver Broncos. Manning is also one of the NFL's most recognizable players, earning the nickname The Sheriff, as we all know, due to the, the Omaha. Omaha tendency to audible at the snap. He is the son of former NFL quarterback Archie Manning, the older brother of NFL quarterback, former NFL quarterback Eli Manning. I think we all know him as Cooper's brother now, too, because, I mean, the show is great. Yeah, that's that may be that may be better than football, although I feel like the questions could be harder. Uh, Played college football at Tennessee, uh, and then he is the five time NFL MVP. So without further ado, Rick, get us into the stats and let's go into some of the questions about what makes Peyton Manning a Hall of Famer. So, you know, the stats are are, are really amazing, actually. Uh, and, and I Scott, I think the way we should say it overall that basically when he retired, he was number one in, in every significant stat. Uh, Breeze, uh, Brady can pass, will have a, or will pass him by, but, you know, he's, he, he's at the benchmark. If we go to the 2015 time machine, he is the GOAT. Yes. Uh, so here's, here are his stats. Uh, uh, career totals, 266 games. And let me start out with that by saying, other than Brady, 
Tom is uh, uh, Peyton is the greatest winning percentage and uh, total wins of any quarterback. He's one eighty six and seventy nine versus seven oh two. He played in two two hundred sixty six games. He attempted nine thousand three hundred and eighty passes, completed six thousand one hundred and twenty five of them, passed for seventy one thousand nine hundred and forty yards. 539 TDs. He had 251 picks. His overall quarterback rating, and this, of course, includes some of the early years, which drew this down. His quarterback rating for the career was 96.5. He, is, he threw for, uh, let's see here, an average yards of 1.5. Uh, and no, no, this is, this is, I guess that's, I guess I'm reading, I'm, now I'm getting into the rushing. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's it. That's it. There's no rushing statistics with Peyton that are worth a damn anyway. He had a couple though. He had surprisingly more rushing yards than I thought he was. <laughs> yeah, I know he had he had 18 touchdowns, but they don't count. Hey, and that that playoff run for the Broncos have one of the most significant runs in that final uh, run to the Super Bowl that is unbelievably memorable in 2015. Absolutely, he did. That's for sure. All right, so let's get into it. So, Bill, when you drafted Peyton. What were your expectations and how far beyond those did he exceed them? Well, I'll tell you a great story. As we got to mid-March, just before the just before the owners' meetings, Jim Ersay called me in and said, give me a thumbnail scouting report on both guys, Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning. Boom or bust. What are we what are we looking at? Typical of Jim to get right down to the nitty-gritty. You know, not a lot of nuance. Let's get right down to the nitty gritty. So I said, well, in Leaf's case, if we hit, if we're right, we're going to have a guy who has marvelous talent, um, some ability to rise to the occasion. He proved that in the Rose Bowl, win a big game, or at least keep them, you know, take an underdog as far as it could go in a big game. And, um, and, and you know, has a chance to mature and develop into uh, a winning quarterback. But maturity is the key. If he doesn't mature, we have a complete bust on our hands. This is a complete washout mm-hmm. because there is no no way that in his in his present level of maturity he can succeed in the National Football League because right. it's too tough. He's going from Washington State, where he was a hero, uh, never questioned about anything, to the National Football League. He has an agent who's who's the world's greatest enabler of bad behavior. And and so you know this this is this is headed right down the the drain if he doesn't mature. Um, and in the in the in the famous words of Dominelli, our personnel director, uh, if you uh, give a fat guy a million dollars, is he going to get skinny? Uh, <laughs> the answer is probably no. So if you give an enabled, immature uh, rookie, a million dollars. Is he suddenly going to get maturity? Uh, the odds are not great. Probably not good. So yeah, if if we miss on Ryan, it's a complete bust. In Peyton's case, if we hit, we're going to get a, a very cerebral, um, driven, hardworking quarterback who can probably lead you to the promised land. He doesn't have overwhelming athletic ability by the standards of the National Football League, by the way, by the standards of the human race, he's in the 1%. Mm-hmm. 
Right. But <laughs> having said that, he doesn't have overwhelming uh, athletic ability and he doesn't have overwhelming arm strength. But in both cases, it's good enough. But his maturity, his work ethic and his uh, his desire to succeed uh, and his self-discipline are off the charts. So, uh, in, in addition to be able, being able to process at a, at a really at a really amazing rate. So if we hit on him, we got a guy who can is all the, 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 the mental capacity and emotional capacity to lead us to the promised land and and and, and, the, and the athletic ability and arm strength are good enough and the accuracy is, is really better than good enough. And if we lose, if we miss, if he doesn't turn out to be what we hoped he would be, the worst we have is Bernie Kosar. Yeah. Oh, that was, a good, that was a great, yeah. Wow, that's true. Well, and, and it was true. Yeah. <laughs> now, he doesn't like me repeating the story. And neither does Bernie, actually. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. But it's a tribute to both guys. It's a tribute to both guys. It, it, it is not bad to get painted with the Bernie Kosar brush. Yeah. So um, that, that was the – Jim just shrugged his shoulders and said, well – I guess that we know where we're going. And I said, well, we still have some work to do yet, but, but that's, that's where we are right now. So Bill, you know, uh, we've talked before and, and you just reinforced the kind of guy Peyton was uh, from the, the very beginning. Um, here's one we've never asked you. Uh, and you can certainly talk about this simply in terms of his performance uh, on the field or something larger as a, as a person. So you, you started out with this, uh, you know, incredible potential. And as you just said, how did Peyton change over the years and how did he stay the same? Well, he stayed largely the same. I mean, the, the guy we drafted was essentially the guy that, that, uh, that, that we worked and lived with and, and won with for 14 years. He, he was amazingly consistent in his work ethic, amazingly consistent in his intellectual approach to things, amazingly consistent in his, in his desire to always be better, um, amazingly consistent in his, in his desire to do everything that it took to win. None of that ever changed. Uh, in fact, it, 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 it got better over time. Um, what did change was his ability <clears throat> to handle um, every kind of adversity that faced him. And, and that's, the, that's the story of success for everybody in the National Football League. Think about it this way. Um, you come into the National Football League having been a- any player who makes it in the National Football League right. has always been the best at what he's done for his entire life. For 21 or 22 years, he's been the best guy on his team in high school, the best guy, the first guy picked in the playground. Um, the, 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 you know, the high school all-star, the, the close to college All-American, if not that, uh, a star, big man on campus, um, never failed at anything virtually in his life. And now, all of a sudden, he's thrust into envi- an environment where everybody is the same. Right, right. <laughs> he's playing <laughs> against his peers for the first time in his life. And... And many of those peers have been around for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. They know all the tricks. 
They know all the shortcuts. They know all the ways to to uh, uh, continue their careers and to continue to win. Uh, and and so you, as a young player, have to adjust to that. In addition, in addition to that, you have to adjust to the fact that you're no longer the fair-haired boy. As a matter of fact, the higher the draft choice, the larger the target on you by the media. You know, they'll fall in love with you for during the draft process. But uh, once the draft process is over, you're fair game. Right. And if you fail, uh, they'll, they'll cut your head off. Sure. So um, the, they experience that for the first time in their lives. They experience being booed for the first time in their lives. Um, they experience being labeled a loser. Uh, now, Peyton had that label uh, because they, they couldn't beat Florida in the SEC at, at, for his last couple of years in in, in uh, college, uh, principally his last year, uh, and it was a means of of denying him the Heisman Trophy. It was done by by Heisman Trophy voters. Um, I don't know how much of it um, got to him at the University of Tennessee at the time. I think, like most college students, he was pretty insulated from it. But that that was a uh, that was a bad rap, obviously, but that was, he was one of the few college players to ever be subjected to that. Most of the time they're, you know, they're fair haired boys until they set foot in an NFL locker room and then they become targets. And that's, that can, that can destroy a player's career. I've seen numerous players unable to handle to handle that. So um, that changed over time. He was able to, he was much more uh, at ease um, handling it, um, he he deflected a lot of criticism with his with his sense of humor, which everybody it's a great got. Gift. To, yes, it is a great gift, which everybody got to see on Saturday Night Live. But we'd seen long before that. He, uh, but he he remained um, to his last day with us. Um, the hard nosed, no nonsense. This is the way it needs to be done, competitor that he was when he came in. And and his statement to the press at his opening press conference was um, – or actually that, that day was pretty instructive of, of, of what we had and what he was for the whole 14 years. He was asked in the press conference um, – he was late in signing. I think it was a couple of days late in signing, if I'm not mistaken – and he was asked in a press conference, what are you going to do with all this money? I, I forget how much we paid him, but he was the highest paid because of the, there was no rookie wage scale in those days. He was the highest paid quarterback in the league by virtue of his rookie contract. That's what's what was wrong with the rookie system. That's why it was changed. But um, he was then the highest paid quarterback in the, in, in the National Football League. And it was millions. I can't remember the number, but it was millions. And... Uh, and they said to him, "How do you plan to uh, How do you plan to uh, handle uh, all this money?" And, and he said, "I plan to earn it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful statement. Just just emasculated the whole issue from there on in. And then I drove him up to camp. Uh, we were our camp was uh, you know about an hour away from our facility in those days. And uh, during the whole ride up, we were telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and laughing 
to beat the band. <laughs> and that's him. <laughs> you know, that that's that's the kind of guy he is. But the meticulousness never changed. Uh, the attention to detail never changed. The devotion to preparation never changed. Um, the ability to uh, to put distractions aside and even defeat them in many ways uh, was how he grew over time. Um, but the essence of what he was um, was there when we drafted him, and it, and it, and it remains so today. He's the same guy. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty unusual, you know what I mean? Yes, it is. I mean, that, that may be his greatest gift. All right, so before we dive into the traits that sort of made him a Hall of Famer, when did you know? Was there like a moment or a, a period of time when you knew, okay, I think that this is going to be an all-time great, but when did you know he was an all-time great? I don't know. That that that's that's hard to say. You know, when you're in when you're in the trenches, um, let me let me back up. As a general manager, I was not above the fray. Um, when I was when I was let go in Buffalo, uh, a columnist there who I, you know, had crossed swords with on more than a few occasions, wrote that one of the reasons I was let go was that I was quote a player's general manager close quote. And what he meant by that, he was repeating something that had been told to him by the club's treasurer, who was a, you know, less than stellar person, uh, who, who said that, well, you know, Pauline always takes the player's side. When, when, when it's about money, he always takes the player's side. He always wants to pay the player what the player wants. Now, that wasn't true at all. But uh, and, and then the next sentence was, you know, he's always around the players. He's always in the locker room. He's always on the field. Uh, he's not representing Mr. Wilson's interest. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that, that 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 was, you know, pretty close to the to the truth. And, and the reason I say it's pretty close to the truth is because that's what I am. Right. Now, I, I was I was a hard bargain. Uh, I, I was very conscious of the fact that I was the steward of the finances of the franchise and of the owner for whom I work. Um, but I didn't dislike players. Uh, I didn't discount them. And and. I was around, if I wasn't out scouting, I was around at every practice. I was in the locker room every day or most every day. And, and I was a presence. So, um, and, and I wanted the players to feel that management, um, A, didn't manipulate them and, and B, more importantly, cared about them as people and, 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 you know, for their families and so on and so forth. So, um, when when I when I talk about Peyton and how he grew over time and what he did, and you know, when did I know he was going to be an all timer? I don't know. I I, <laughs> I was concerned yeah. about uh, next you know, week. How, how are we going to beat San Diego next week? Yes, that's exactly just like him, just like him. You know. One day we both woke up and said, wow, this has been a heck of a career. Yeah, right. Yeah. This, this is pretty good. You know, that, that, when, when that happened in Buffalo, I remember thinking at the time, I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, in what other business would anybody say, if you have the kind of CEO who, you know, goes down the, you know, the hall uh, of the other executives, thanks people, goes out on the shop floor, you know, shoots the breeze with it, anyone would go, this is the greatest CEO in the world. Not only does he make good corporate decisions, 
but he's constantly out there letting the employees know how much he appreciates them. I mean, it's absurd. To, it, is, it was absolutely the truth, but it was absurd to level that as a criticism. That was a, 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 an attribute on your part. Well, that, first of all, Mr. Wilson wanted it that way, and that's the way he was. His first piece of advice to me when, I, when, I, when he gave me the job was, don't be a prisoner in your office. Be a presence. Get out to other people's offices. You know, see them. Get you know that that was his that was his way of doing things. This one individual, um, who unfortunately had his ear, didn't see it that way. Right, and, and he had he had his own designs. Yes, he did. He had his own plan. Yeah, which resulted in 18 years without playoffs. Right. So how did that work out? <laughs> After four Super Bowl appearances. Okay, way to go, buddy. Way to go. Tilting the scales. All right, well, let's jump into the trade. So, obviously, a trait you've stressed with us, and, you know, I think everybody knows it, is his preparation. So, what was Peyton's work ethic like, and how different was it from a lot of other players? Well, his work ethic was off the charts. Um, he, he never left any stone unturned. So much so that, you know, at some point in time, everybody – who worked with him said, Whoa, take it easy. You know, <laughs> you're going too far into the weeds here. <laughs> uh, but that was him. You know, he wanted, he, he wanted to make sure that he covered every possible situation and, and could deal with every possible situation that was going to show up. Now, most quarterbacks are very dedicated to preparation. Most are very meticulous most are very demanding of the people who work around them. Uh, that's not, in, in fact, all the good ones are, are, are that way. Um, and they all tend to be type A personalities in one way or another. You know, a guy may appear to be laid back, but in, 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 the, in truth, he's a hard driver. You know, they, they don't reach that level without being type A personalities. So that was not unusual. The fact that he was constantly searching for um, an edge, number one, and number two, constantly trying to make sure that we covered every single possibility um, that could come up in the course of a game really set him, uh, set him apart. And, and there are a couple of anecdotes that are, that are pretty funny about it. The first was what we came to be called um, the Pro Bowl list. Um, he would go to the Pro Bowl every year. And, and, and you know, you, you couldn't – Brady almost never went. And, you know, you, you couldn't convince Peyton that, hey, you need the rest. What the heck are you going out there for? You're flying to Hawaii. You know, not, I, I tried to climb that mountain one time. Nah, no, no, no dice. So – Okay, go ahead to the Pro Bowl. So he would go to the Pro Bowl and be coached by different coaches, one of whom happened to be Bill Belichick one year. And uh, and and uh, and I said to him before he went, now listen, you know, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that Dom Capers gave me many years ago, which is to say, you know, you're going to be in contact with a lot of people there who are going to pump you for information. The rule of thumb is give 20, get 80. Right. So give 20% of what you know, get 80% of what they know. So, and I said, be careful now. Bill's going to, Bill's going to try and 
try and get as much information as he can. That's his job. So he came back and he had this long list of, uh, of things that, that, that he thought that he'd seen at the Pro Bowl that he wanted to implement. And so we would sit down every year and we'd go through it. And I'd say, oh, that's a good idea. I said, no, we can't do that <laughs> because that's a good idea. Okay, we'll do that. No, we can't do that. That's against league rules, stuff like that. That would go on every year. Now, it was, it was, a, it was a great exercise because it did give us uh, a, a, some insight into uh, what he was seeing and hearing out there. But I, I, I dare say that uh, the opposition got some stuff too. <laughs> it, but you know, if you want to go on, you want to go on a paid vacation to Hawaii every year for 14 years. You know, that's okay too. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that that e that Ihalani resort out there was pretty nice, actually. But but only Peyton would come back with a with a to do list of things <laughs> that can help us be better. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, and part of this. Uh, that we've you've talked about is uh, his attention to detail in every way. Uh, can you can you share a story? Um, and I'm just going to set it up by saying coffee maker. <laughs> you know what? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, give me the context. On oh, okay. Okay. So here's what maybe you can, so. And I actually did hear this from another player at one point. Uh, you know, and this was deeper in his career when when Peyton was sort of running things in a lot of ways and he walked in to the locker room and wherever the coffee maker was i guess on this table it had been moved to the other side of the table and he was like what the hell are you what are you doing moving the coffee maker that coffee maker belongs over there not over here and, i mean that wasn't gonna win your losses but nothing was too small you know to escape his attention to me well i hadn't heard that but it doesn't surprise me uh <laughs> uh he was very focused on attention to detail and that was his way. That was his way of getting immersed in the situation. As an example, as he got older uh, and, and, and we had more young players backing him up when he was younger, we had veterans backing him, Steve Walsh being Mark Rippon, people like that backing him up. Uh, and, and so he, he kind of melded with them. But as younger guys came in, uh, they really became his graduate assistants. So it was their job to go break down film from four years ago when the defensive coordinator we were going to play two weeks from now was with another club and, and faced an offense similar to what we did. Go break that down, find out what blitzes they used, et cetera, et cetera. So he would go back years if there was a relationship there that he felt he could glean some information from or protect us against something that we we weren't uh, particularly focused on and you know typically starting quarterbacks would go back through 16 games or 12 games or whatever he, he could go back three four years ago right. uh to 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 see and, and and the young quarterbacks had to go ferret that out take break it out of the film, get it put on a clip and so on and so forth. So uh, they, they, now they learned a lot. Tom Arth, who was, uh, who was the third quarterback, I think for two years is now the head coach at Akron <laughs> right. and, and, and was, and became the head coach at middle Tennessee largely because Peyton strongly recommended him. And, and, 
the Peyton Manning coaching tree. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it's yet to be determined. So that part of him was was terribly unique, terribly unique. So, Bill, with that level of prep, I mean, what kind of impact did that have on sort of the coaches and their preparation for the game and the influence he maybe had on the game plan every week? Well, first of all, every quarterback, every veteran quarterback has influence on the game plan, everyone. Um, and, I, I, you know, I didn't know that until I got to professional football. And I really didn't know it until I got to Winnipeg, uh, where I was in the office every day. And Cal Murphy would sit down with Tom Clemens, Cal Murphy, the guy rest his soul, the sainted head coach. He's in the CFL Hall of Fame, magnificent person and friend. He would his office was next to mine, and he would sit down with Tom Clemens, who was the quarterback, uh, every every Tuesday, and say, "Okay, you know, here's what we've got on the menu of what we think will work. What, what do you like here? You know." What don't you like? That goes on everywhere in the right. National Football League. Um, when I got to the Bills, uh, John Becker, who was then the quarterback coach, would do it with Joe Ferguson. You know, he, he was he was he was uh, uh, he'd sit there with Joe for hours on end, and, and I I got I had great respect for Joe because he was derided by the media in, in Buffalo. He's one of the toughest, most talented, most dedicated guys I've ever come across. Tremendous. Um, so that's that's normal. In Peyton's case, um, he would go all the way through the week. And, and like on Thursday, he'd come in on Friday morning where you put things to sleep, you know, wrapping it up. It's, it's the last real hard practice of the week. And, and, and you're putting the bow on things. And, and he'd be in with Jim Caldwell saying, you know, I, I think we, we need to add this. I think we need to add that. We need, think we need to add this. So uh, Tom Moore and Tony and Jim's general rule was we're not going to put something in unless we rep it, meaning practice it. Right. And, uh, and so uh, Jim and Peyton would sit down on Friday when everybody else left the office. Friday's an early day. Everybody leaves it at 1 o'clock after practice. And they would sit down and go over the ready list and then if there was something that both of them felt like they, they could add, and we'd make sure we practiced it on Saturday. So he, he, he took it two steps further than most <laughs> other quarterbacks would go. Yeah. Now, it's not uncommon to take things out of a game plan either. Um, I don't remember a whole heck of a lot of him taking a whole heck of a lot out, but I didn't attend those Friday meetings that, yeah, anyway. But, you know, I, I – I do. I know in other instances, Jim Kelly and other people, you know, getting to the end of the week and saying, well, I really don't like that one. Let's take this out. That's common. Right. Uh, but adding is, is really not common. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what about uh, the his, with his work ethic and attention to everything? How do you think that affected the other players on the team? Well, it affected them positively and negatively. The, the, the most famous one is uh, is in the Super Bowl preparation in Miami uh, before we played Chicago. Uh, you know, we're down there, and, and it's our, our first Super Bowl in Indianapolis, and, uh, and we're at the Dolphins facility, and the weather could not have been more gorgeous. It was 75 and sunny, 
slight breeze every single day. It was picture postcard Miami at that time of year. And, uh, and there was some thought that there might be rain on Sunday, but you know what? It's never rained on the Super Bowl. Right. That's what all the weathermen said. That's what everybody around the office said. Don't worry about it. It's never rained on Super Bowl Sunday. Well, Peyton worried about it. So on Thursday and Friday, and maybe even Saturday, I know for sure Thursday and Friday, we practiced with wet balls. And, and what we did was had the equipment man soak a ball in a bucket, in a bucket of water, hand it to Jeff Saturday, and snap it both seven-on-seven and in teamwork. So that meant that Jeff was handling a soaking wet ball for probably 70 snaps in each practice, maybe more. So his glove was soaked. The inside of his pants were soaked. (laughs) (laughs) He was not a happy camper. (laughs) And, And Peyton was getting used to throwing a soaking wet ball. Well, you, you you don't need Paul Harvey to tell you the rest of the story. <laughs> you know what the rest of the story was. He was throwing, Jeff was snapping, and Peyton was throwing a soaking wet ball on Super Bowl Sunday. And we ended up uh, beating the Chicago Bears and becoming world champions. But there was plenty of grousing about the wet ball <laughs> during the week. Well, there you go. All right. So then his typical week, I'm assuming he was in the building more than almost just about anybody else. Right. Can you walk us through like his typical week of prep during the season? And was that just sort of different than anybody else you'd seen? Um, not really. I mean, he did a lot of his work at home. OK. Uh, the the uh, he was in on Tuesday, uh, maybe maybe a little earlier than most guys. But he was in looking at film and working, as I said, with the backup quarterbacks to go through stuff that that he wanted to see that uh, the upcoming opponent, he knew the upcoming upcoming opponent might use or had used. Um, And then they're typically somewhere around four o'clock on Tuesday, the quarterback comes into a meeting with the offensive coordinator and sometimes the head coach and the quarterback coach, and they go over the preliminary game plan and, and the preliminary and the scouting report. So the, the, all the quarterbacks are in the office on Tuesday. Uh, in, in, you know, uh, Monday was, was typically a late day for, for the players. They came in around noon and stretched, and then we had a period on the field where we corrected mistakes and we put the last game behind us. And then Peyton would go home and, and study film. And uh, – and then he did a lot of film study at home. So he was, you know, other than being in a little earlier, maybe a lot earlier than normal on Tuesday, it was just kind of a normal week. And as I said, on Friday, he would stay with Jim Caldwell and go through um, the entire game plan and determine what they wanted to put in and what they wanted to take out. That that was a bit unusual. Right. So th- th- just just this is a stupid nerdy question, but the, when he first was in the league, that those were the tape days, right? So you guys would have to get yeah. a tape for him to bring home, and then I'm assuming he had the full sort of tape. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, certainly, yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. See, that wasn't easy. Modern day quarterbacks, you had to be sort of a little more tech savvy, how to actually navigate uh, playback and those kinds of things. It just wasn't at your fingertips. It, it was better than having to do it on a 35 millimeter projector. Then. That is true, but still not easy. Right. So, Bill, um, 
Let me ask you a general question and then we'll, we'll deal down, drill down on this. Uh, sort of moving on to the actual game on the field. So um, on the field itself, what do you think were Peyton's greatest strengths? Well, again, preparation, because he was able through diligent film study to get tells on the opposition and figure out immediately what defense they were in and what the best play was to attack that defense. Phil Sims, uh, in, in, in preparation for a book, which I'm writing with Vic Carucci, which will come out in November called Super Bowl Blueprint, um, talked about the fact that Peyton Manning changed how quarterback was played throughout the world of football, from the NFL to peewee leagues. Before that, quarterbacks had audibles, most famously Johnny Unitas um, in, in, the, in the 50s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and, and Norm Van Brocklin, uh, when he was with the Eagles in, in, the, in 1960. Um, but it was, it was proscribed, and it was, you know, defenses were not as, as um, complex as they are now. We didn't have situation substitution. We didn't have the varying different fronts. We didn't have all of, all of the sophisticated blitzes and coverages. And so the ability to stand up there at the line of scrimmage, dissect the defense, and get the, get the offense into the right play is absolutely unique because you have to have the whole playbook in your head. you got to have the whole game plan in your head. And if you notice, he never used the wristband. Right. So, you know, it was all in his head. And, and so he was able um, to get the call. Tom Moore would give him, would give him a play call. And, uh, and if he didn't like it, he'd get out of it and go to something else that was in the game plan based on what he saw. And, uh, and, and he was able to um, control the protection. He was able to control the front, the, the formations, the motion, all of that, which virtually every quarterback has to know. But he was able to dissect defenses better maybe than anybody that ever played. And keep in mind that when you're dissecting the defense pre-snap, now you have to do it again post snap because they change. They're not gonna, they're not gonna give you the same look in the secondary that they show you before the snap. He was so good at it, as a matter of fact, that defenses, along about the middle of his career, when we really got good defensively, where we could we could you know, we could shut people down pretty well. Um, he would be in a position where the opposition defenses would shift when the play clock got to nine seconds. And I think it was New England who came up with that. New England or San Diego, can't remember which. But they would wait until there was nine seconds on the clock because they they figured out how long it took him to call the autumn. Right. They, they, the advanced scout or, or the use of television tape, probably both, gave them the fact that nine seconds was what basically it took him to call the audible. Remember him walking up and down and pointing and things like that. A lot of that was dummy, but a lot, and some of it was, was live too. And obviously the opposition doesn't have any idea 
what, what you know what, what's live or isn't. So they would wait until nine seconds, and then they would jump into a different defense. So we had to come up with, with a way to counteract that, which we did. But it's the it's the it was the ultimate tip of the cap to Peyton Manning because they knew that they had to figure out a way to stop him from getting into the ideal play every single time. Hmm. How much do you of that? I mean, obviously he prepared as much as almost anybody. How much of that ability to do that is God given? You think? Well, I don't know if it's yeah. You know, I guess God given is a good way to say it. Yeah, I mean, his intellect is is incredible. I mean, he's really off the charts intellectually. So, but most quarterbacks are too. I mean, he, he's not he's not an exceptional exception. All quarterbacks are are, ex, are exceptions in that area. Um, but his ability. That intellectual ability, which is God-given, coupled with his work ethic and his his single-minded devotion to being the best he could be, um, may set him apart. I mean, there's there's nobody that I've ever been around, and very few that I've seen. And I can't speak to Brady because nobody know. I'm, I, I have no idea how they practice or what goes on there. So let's exclude that before people get mad at me. Uh, nobody that I've ever seen or been around had that capacity. Uh, the combination of God-given intellect and, and an incredible work ethic to, in effect, memorize the entire playbook and game plan and be able to regurgitate it under pressure after, after surveying the, the, the defense and recognizing that's no one's ever done that before. Now, a lot since try, but but you can find, I can point to any number of of of, uh, of failures along those lines. Yeah, yeah. It takes a unique talent and a unique work ethic to do that. Yeah, because it also seemed like he was capable of doing some of it at Tennessee. I mean, you go back and watch games in that sort of '97 season. I mean, even in the Florida game, he's up at the line of scrimmage, sort of moving guys around, audibling. I mean, this seems like something that this was kind of innate at some level from an, from a very early age. Well, some of it is DNA. I mean, you know, he was around his dad. He was around his dad as as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, you know, at practice and things like that. So that there's certainly that's part of it. Um, David Cutcliffe is a huge part of it, his coach at, at, at uh, Tennessee, um, because David believed in empowering the quarterback, if the quarterback had the ability to do it, uh, to to change plays and, and get into a situation where they get out of a bad play and into a good one. So he, he did do that at Tennessee. Uh, in addition, the um, and I didn't speak about this before, the, the, the way he developed himself physically and the way he developed his skills physically, I think was unique. Uh, a lot of the credit for that fundamental base goes to Dave. Uh, he, his nickname is Cut, by the way. So if I say that during the course of this broadcast, they're one and the same. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the uh, He developed as quarterback coach at, and offensive coordinator at Tennessee, and then with Eli later on as the head coach at Mississippi. He developed um, – the footwork drills and and uh, and it's and the throwing motion drills and all of the kind of stuff that Peyton later used throughout his career, 
Jim Caldwell expanded on it greatly. And so for every day, every day we set foot on the field from the opening day of training camp to the last day before the Super Bowl, he would do the same 10 minute drill work on footwork, on the use of the body in delivering the ball, on accuracy, though day in and day out, day in and day out. And um, and that's what made him so accurate. It's what made him so special in terms of being able to get the ball out on time, being able to get it there in the right place. And, you know, I guess you could go back over every film and decide who between he and Brady are the more accurate. Uh, you know, Danny Fouts would be in that discussion too. Um, you know, you, you could probably be, probably be a good PhD uh, project. Uh, but I'll tell you this, uh, including Jim Kelly, who is the most accurate deep passer I have ever seen, Peyton's accuracy and his ability to put the ball exactly where the defender can't get it is absolutely unique, absolutely unique. There weren't any 50-50 balls with Peyton Men. You weren't going to throw 50-50 balls because it was going to be 75-25 at a minimum in, in terms of the offensive advantage where he would place the ball. So along those lines, Bill, we, we've obviously uh, talked so much here already about Peyton's uh, mental gifts, uh, his dedication, his driving himself to be better through these drills. But what were some of the actual athletic gifts that he had, you know, at, at an elite level, just physically? Well, number one is height. You know, he, he, he was, he's really tall. He probably closer to six, six than six, five. Um, and, and he had the ability to scan the field rapidly. I mean, that, that we always talk about, and this, again, this is a Dominique, uh, phrase. We talk about fast eyes with quarterbacks. You sit in a scouting meeting and you say, does this guy have fast eyes? Or you look at a film, a tape, and you say, you know what? This guy over here doesn't have fast eyes. This guy in Alabama, Jones, he's got fast eyes. Mm -hmm. So, and that's really important. Guys with fast eyes, the ability to scan, recognize, process, release is paramount to being successful at quarterback. Height increases that. Because you can you can see down the field, you can see over the rush, you can you can diagnose whether that safety's in center field or whether he's not. Um, so that that physical gift was really was really important, and I have a bias because of that because of Jim Kelly, and 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 Kerry Collins and Peyton Manning. I have a bias toward tall quarterbacks. It's hard to sell me on a short quarterback. Right. And I recognize the guy in Arizona is terrific. And I recognize Mayfield's terrific and all of that. But, you know, my, when those scouting reports came in, I would say, time out. Let's talk about this. Right. And Drew is, Drew is the exception that proves the rule. And I was a Drew fan when he was at Purdue, by the way. So 
uh, you know, I recognize that that he was the exception that proves the rule. But there's a lot of small quarterbacks out there, and and, and that's a disadvantage. It's not an advantage. Um, so that that part of it was uh, was a, a real plus for him. The other was that the fast eyes were accompanied by great ability to release on time. And that's a skill, I guess, that you can develop, but I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're born with it. Um, I've talked to Tom House, who is an absolute former Major League Baseball pitcher, PhD in biomechanics, um, and a, a quarterback and pitching guru, and, and he talks about stride length being um, the, the way to generate accuracy and speed in a baseball pitcher, and the same is true with, with, with a football, with throwing a football, although the motion is 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 not very similar. Um, it, it is to an extent, but I don't want to get into the biomechanics here. Yeah, right, right, uh, right. right. The, the, uh, but Peyton's stride length was consistent, absolutely consistent, and and it didn't need to be corrected. He, I mean, he came in with it, so credit cut for working on that and teaching him that at an early level. And if you go to Peyton's passing camp, those drills that they use to, to help young quarterbacks develop um, are all based on the physical ability necessary to deliver the ball accurately. So that was his, that was his gift. You know, did he, did he have a rocket for an arm? No, absolutely not. He wasn't Dan Marino. Very few people are. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he was maybe uh, as strong as arm might not have been as strong as Jim Kelly's, but having said that um, he, he, uh, it was plenty strong enough, but he was gifted in the sense that he could get the ball and put it wherever he wanted to put it on time, which is, that's, that's a physical gift. And that's a physical gift that the great pitchers have. Right. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I don't think he pitched a lot in high school. He was a uh, he was a shortstop in high school, which tells you, of course, that he was the best athlete on the team. <laughs> Back to my original premise: only one percent. But then there's that other that other bucket. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Are you tired of the same old fantasy football leagues that you hear about online that get canceled after a year or so? If so, Dynasty Owner has your back. Dynasty Owner unites the fun and excitement of fantasy football with the skill and strategy of the front office by incorporating a salary cap and real NFL player salaries for diehard fantasy football fanatics that want the real GM experience. You can finally take all the knowledge you've learned about on the pod and put it to use in actual fantasy football. It adds a whole new level of strategy to fantasy football. They think it's such a big difference maker that they hold three patents on it. So what are you waiting for? Go to DynastyOwner.com. New leagues for the 2021 season are forming now. That's DynastyOwner.com. You know, so if you're worried about you won't be able to find anyone to play with in your league, don't worry. Dynasty Owner can help you fill your league with fantasy football enthusiasts like yourself, so you won't have to worry about finding enough players. You can choose to start your own league, join a league that needs to be filled, or you can even purchase a team from a previous owner if you'd like to take that team to the championship. If you're finally serious about joining the big leagues, Go to DynastyOwner.com and start your dynasty today. That's DynastyOwner.com. 
I'm telling you guys, you are going to absolutely love it. Moving into kind of Peyton the leader. So obviously we as fans have become accustomed with sort of Peyton sort of as the, the face of the league and a leader, but what type of leader was Peyton? I mean, how did his leadership manifest? Was he a big pregame speech kind of guy? Would he pull guys aside? What was his leadership style or did it kind of vary based on the situation? Um, no, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't real vocal. Uh, he didn't give, um, you know, inspirational speeches, if you will. A lot of that's overrated in pro football, by the way. Um, and, and a charismatic coach doesn't give emotional speeches at halftime or anything like that. You know, it, it, in fact, they're very often on Saturday night, um, uh, not, not on game day. Um, his leadership, A, by example, hardest working guy, all the cliches that are now applied to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes into the draft, first guy in, last guy out, that that was Peyton Manning. Uh, probably not a lot that that match up with him in that, in that category. Um, secondly, uh, very strong opinions on what should or shouldn't be done to maximize our chances to win. So – if there was if there was something going on that he perceived to be a distraction, um, you know, Tony heard about it, or I heard about it, or or, or players heard about it, and then finally, a a, a sort of a, a magnet for people to get better. As an example, you have for an offensive player basically five four periods. In, in practice where you don't have anything to do. You know, you're, you're either on the sidelines taking a knee because the defense is out there and they're being serviced by the backups, offensive backups. That's one period team. The same is true for seven on seven. And then the third is short yardage and goal line. When the defense is being serviced by the, by the backup offense and then the fourth is special teams when everybody who's not involved in special teams, which of course doesn't include the quarterbacks and most of the receivers, starting receivers, certainly, um, uh, you know, they don't have anything to do. So typically you'd find them on the sideline taking a knee. Uh, we never allowed, going back to Coach Morrill, never allowed guys to sit on their helmets. That's still to this day when I see it, it jars me. Right. Um, the, the, um, um, the, you know, but they, they'll take a knee and they'll, you know, they'll goof around or tell jokes or, uh, in some cases they'll be watching what goes on on the field. But, you know, a lot of times it's just a period to take a deep breath. Um, not with Peyton when they weren't involved, come on, let's go over the other field. We're going to work on this particular route this week against this particular coverage, against this particular corner safety combo. And, and we're going to test out every single way we can beat this. Right. That was a daily, daily, daily occurrence. And so pretty soon the offensive and defensive linemen might get together during one of those dead periods. And they'd be working on a move or two. Freeney would be over there on the 
uh, and Mathis would be over there on the on the tackle back machine working on a move. They'd grab the defensive line coach and say, come on over here, let's work on this stunt. That stuff rubbed off. Yeah. That work ethic, that endless need to to use every minute to improve really rubbed off and became a, 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 a you know, a, a hallmark and, and a, it became part of the DNA of our team without ever a coach ever saying, come on, let's do this. They, they, they did it all on their own, and he was the impetus for it. And Marvin Harrison also was the impetus for it because Marvin Harrison was Peyton Manning in terms of work ethic who never said anything. Right. And, right. and who could, by the way, who could disappear in plain sight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could be standing in the locker room talking to Marvin, turn your head, and he'd be gone, and no one even knew where he went. He <laughs> was unbelievable, and he and he was he was not vocal at all, but in terms of a worker, these this was a match made in heaven, a match made in heaven, and I knew that uh, his rookie year. Um, share a little story with you that's been told before, but bears repeating because it speaks to it speaks to the subject at hand. We're down in Baltimore. It's, you know, late in the season and uh, I think around Thanksgiving and, and we're hanging in there with them. You know, we're, we're, we've now gotten to the point where we can do some things and, and the defense is getting a little bit better. And, but it's a tough game because uh, Rex Ryan's the, I think was the coordinator at the time. So we're having some difficulty and, but we, but we, it, it's back and forth. And now we have the ball at the end of the game, two minute drive down. We score a touchdown. We win the game. So they line up and they press Marvin and, and Peyton goes to him, but Marvin runs the wrong route or Peyton throws the wrong route. Who knows? You, you can't tell so much for analytics, by the way, charging somebody with an error there. You don't know who, who made the error <laughs> until, until you talk about it the next day. Uh, so as soon as Coach Mora ended, his, you know, the, the post-game prayer and his remarks, I grabbed both guys and I said, come on over here to a kind of an empty corner of the locker room. And I said, listen, I don't want either of you to hang your heads. I don't want either of you to be upset. I don't want you to even acknowledge that, that what happened happened because it will never happen again. And they looked at me like, what? I said, Here, here's the thing. I've seen you guys for a full year, and I know your work ethic. And I know that after one offseason working together, this will never happen again. I guarantee it will never happen again because I know that you're going to work together in the offseason to make sure that this is as crisp and as clean an operation as we can have. And not that I was prescient. You just needed to know what the two guys were made of. And that's that's how it took place. And it never did happen again. We want to start doing a new Kreskin uh, segment on the show where we have Bill just guess the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could also add other magic tricks like Marvin disappearing. So this is this this could be a whole new thing for us. Yeah. Only Marvin could do that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, weird question that I always wanted to know. Where did taking a knee come from? Taking a knee, uh, I'm going to give you a theory, okay, that was told to me. It makes perfect sense. Uh, there, were, there are two, two sayings that I think date back to 
uh, at least in my experience, date back to World War II or the Korean War. I don't know which. Both have to do with the Marine Corps. Um, when you change sides, often coaches from that generation will yell Riverside, and everybody knows what that means. That was a, that dates back to I'm told Paris Island, the, the Marine Corps training base. Okay. One side was on the land side, the other side was on the river side. That, that, that supposedly is the derivation of it. Taking a knee is the same. Okay. Uh, it comes from a uh, from what the military was taught to do during World War II. That was told told to me by one of my coaches who who'd been in World War II. Now, I'll bet you there's 16 his football historians who'll write in and say it was done by Pop Warner and so forth. And I'm sure they'll be right, but that's yeah. that's that's my understanding of it. Hey, there we go. I've never researched it. Hey, that, that might be my project for this week. Your, your new assignment, Scott. I'm just going to read Pat Conroy novels and then be like, yeah, I think it's probably yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah, that, that's they're worth a read anyway. Well, so. Pat Conroy was a basketball player, so <laughs> I, don't know that, I don't know that he's, he's, he's privy to it. Wrote a lot about Paris Island, though. He, he did. Yes, great he did. Santini, yeah. so. Great Santini. Yes, he did. Oh, yeah, exactly. Great movie, great book. Um, Bill, talk a little bit about what it took, his his dedication, his love for the game, for Peyton to play through and recover from and play again from that neck injury. Uh, well, I mean, that that's a minor miracle, really. Um, he struggled. Well, let's go back to the to the beginning of it. The original injury was treated during the lockout in 2011, and everybody in the organization, except the doctors and the train, the head trainer, were prohibited from talking to any of the players, and, and for fear that the lockout would be broken by a violation of federal labor law. Right, and. Our general counsel uh, with the Colts made a big issue of that. Anybody that violates this is in terrible shape, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, really threatening people's employment. And so when all of this finally came to a head and we found out that Peyton was going to need additional surgery, I talked to a friend of mine who was the general manager of another club and said, hey, you mean to tell me you didn't talk to him after the first operation? I said, no, they wouldn't allow us to. He said, what are you, crazy? <laughs> and I thought, yes, I am. That's stupid. <laughs> uh, this is the franchise. Yeah. And I'm worried about violating some labor law. Exactly. It's, uh, and I'll be the one to say this. That's what you get for listening to lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In any event, we didn't talk to him. He had uh, he had a, a neck injury that had bothered him the previous season. Um, I still don't know the, all the details on this. He, he went to a surgeon, I believe, in Chicago who did a procedure which which did not solve the problem. And so he came back to, to training camp after the lockout and after it was settled and, um, and uh, clearly was having a lot of difficulty throwing. So... Um, our neurosurgeon, who's the, among the best in the, in the world, Dr. Hank Foyer, and our other docs, uh, including Art Reddick, who's also a terrific team physician, said, look, let's, let's let him rehab this and see 
if we can get him back to the point where where he can, you know, he feels good about throwing. And so we said we'll put him on. Um, I forget whether we put him on. I think we put him on PUP, physically unable to perform. And and we worked him out. We were at Anderson College at the time up in Anderson, Indiana, and they had an indoor facility of sorts. And um, so we had him throw in the indoor facility every day. He never set foot on the field. He went into the indoor facility and, and, and threw sometimes twice a day. And it was, and obviously we all watched him and um, it wasn't getting any better. It wasn't improving. I mean, it, it, it'd go by fits and starts and then you'd have a, you'd have a setback. He was frustrated, but the docs were great. They said, well, you know, let's keep working on it. Dave Hammer, our trainer, was tremendous. Let's keep working with it. Um, and and so we got toward um, the end of camp, and we were going to open, I believe, with Houston, and we're back in, in our facility in Indianapolis. And um, he said, I'd like to go out and, and – uh, after practice, put together a, a red zone package and see if I can execute that. Now, part of that was the desire to beat Houston, clearly. Part of it was that he I don't think he'd missed a start in his career. Um, and so, I mean, there, that, that was, a you know, a, obviously an important thing to him, an important thing to the club, too. So I said, okay, fine. Um, let's do it. So after practice, we got some receivers and Jeff Saturday to snap the ball and so forth. And, and we went through, uh, we went through uh, this script of red zone that we put together. And um, it, it really, it really wasn't any good. And I said to him before, when we talked about it before the workout, Jim Caldwell was involved in that as well. And, and we, and we said, look, we're not going to put you out there if, if, if you can't, protect yourself. If you can't be in a position where you can deliver the ball against the blitz where they're sending nine to get you, we are not putting you out there because you know that you knew that was going to happen. Right. If he proved that he could not deliver the ball with any degree of accuracy and velocity, they're coming with nine with 10, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and they're going to try and hurt him. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the game. And uh, so we said, we're not putting you out there if that's the case. So, um, the workout finished, and uh, and he came over to Jim and I and said, what do you think? And I said, well, there's good news and bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. I said, well, the good news is that your arm is is about on par. And I mentioned the name of a Jets quarterback years ago who had a notoriously um, weak arm. Yeah, <laughs> Pennington. Of, Chad Pennington. I said, you're, you're – you're, you know, you're, you're about on par with Chad Pennington on certain throws, but not on others. And the bad news is that we're not going to put you out there. Right. So he was really ticked off. He stormed away, you know, and just kind of, he was really stick, ticked off. And, I, you know, we both, Jim and I both said, listen, we'll get over it. But, you know, we're not going to put him out there and take a chance. So that might have been. Thursday or Friday, I'm not sure which. Saturday, we had to cut to 53 or Friday, whatever day it was, end of the week. And um, 
and we're in the meeting with the coaching staff, myself and two other uh, executives and, uh, and the head trainer. And uh, all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, which should never have happened. I mean, no one ever interrupts that meeting. When that door is closed, everybody in the building knows what's going on. No one ever interrupts that meeting. So uh, we presumed it was an emergency of some kind. So open, somebody opened the door and, and they said, Bill, they, they need to see in the training room. So I said, okay, all right, it must be serious. So off I go. And uh, Dr. Foyer's there and, uh, and, and uh, Dr. Reddick's there and the head trainer's there. So Dr. Foyer says, you, you got to take a look at this MRI. So he put the MRI up on the screen and he's showing me that effectively Peyton needs a spinal fusion. And uh, I said, wow, whoa. Yeah. So uh, I said, well, what, what does this mean? Is it the end of his career? He said, well, no, it's probably not the end of his career, but it's it, the likelihood is he's out for the whole season. And, uh, and, and then we have, you know, we got to bring him in here and tell him that. And then we have to, you know, it's up to him to decide what surgeon he wants. Uh, and then we have to, you know, go through the surgery and the rehab and all of that kind of thing. So I said, okay, fine. Um, and I, to this day, I can't remember whether I went back to the meeting and, and dropped that bomb in the meeting. My tendency is to think that I did, but my memory's bad on it. Or I may have pulled Jim aside and told him and then told the coaching staff at a later time. I can't remember which, but obviously it was as though you had dropped a nuclear weapon in the room. Yeah. Not a little one. The season. So, um, actually, before Peyton came in, I grabbed Chris Polian and Tom Telesco and the pro person and the, and, the, and the pro personnel people and said, you know, we let's Peyton's going to be out a significant amount of time, so we, we're going to have to add somebody. I didn't go into all the details. So, um, actually, I believe it was uh, we brought in Kerry Collins yep. at that point in time, and. Um, and they had, they were, you know, typical of them. They were prepared. They had a list. And then, of course, uh, the little after all of that was done, I went back and met with Peyton and the doctors, and they they took him through the whole process. And and then um, he decided that 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 group plus his dad would would be, uh, and he would be the group that would sort of vet the doctors. And uh, and so. Um, he chose uh, a doctor in Los Angeles whose name escapes me right now, uh, but who had a very good track record of, of performing these surgeries and with whom we spoke on the telephone. And he was uh, very upbeat. He said, he'll be, he'll be fine. You know, he'll be fine. Uh, we were concerned that Jim, Ursa, Jim Ursay was terribly concerned about another blow to the place where the fusion was. And it was high. It was up, up, up high in his in his his neck, and uh, or just below his neck. And the uh, and and this doctor said no, no. The surgeon said no. Don't worry about it. He's he, it'll hold. You don't have to worry about that. Um, Jim, I think probably well, Peyton's finished playing now. But as long as he played, I, I, I'm certain he was he was worried about that. I mean, he was almost obsessed with it. Um, 
you know, for fear that he would end up, uh, you know, with, with severe and maybe paralysis or severe um, disability. So uh, then the operation took place two, three weeks later, and then Peyton came back in rehab for the whole season. And uh, during the course of that season, which of course was uh, terrible, we were, we were ended up being two and 14. Kerry Collins came in and, and, and played pretty well for us, but had his career ended by a concussion. So, you know, the old story, when it rains, it pours. Yep. And after, after that, it was, it was downhill. Um, but um, the, uh, I happened to walk into the training room one day and, uh, and I saw Peyton standing there. Um, this was during practice. So no one else was in there. And if you looked at him on the, on the, left side of his body he looked like a professional athlete on the right side of his body he looked like a, an emaciated almost skeleton right and, and and it was shocking that's how much uh, atrophy had taken place um, over the course of the injury and the and and the rehab but he built himself back up and then of course at the end of the year jim decided to uh to go in a different direction, both with me and Peyton. And, um, but he did play the additional four years in Denver and, and, uh, obviously took them to, uh, two Super Bowls. And so he had four for his career and, and, and two wins. And, uh, uh, let's see a week from, uh, this coming Saturday, it'll be formally acknowledged in camp. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a good way to sort of talk about sort of our final question is what do you think Peyton's legacy will be? I mean, obviously we've gone through it. Unbelievable love of the game. I mean, I think this is a love story about football in a lot of ways. What, what do you think his legacy will be? And do you think that story is far from finished in the sense of there's going to be another stop on his football journey before he's done, don't you think? Yes, I do. Um, first of all, he is a football nerd. There's no two ways about that. Right. <laughs> like we've seen it on TV. We've seen it in real life. we he loves football. I think it's one of the reasons that he and I got along so well. I mean, we were both football nerds. Uh, you know, we get excited about the minutia of football. And, uh, and so uh, that's part of it. You know, when you judge uh, every other quarterback who came after him, both in Indianapolis or anywhere else, it's against the, the standard that he set, his work ethic, his – attention to detail, his devotion to making himself the best player he could be, the, the leadership by example that he showed with the team, all of that kind of stuff, his, his, his ability to bond with the players. Um, you know, one of the, one of the great, the great things about him was that he was a phenomenal teammate on flights home after victories, particularly big ones. Um, he would gather with the offensive linemen with whom he lockered, by the way, he didn't locker with the quarterbacks. He lockered with the offensive linemen, which was from day one, which was a smart thing to do, of course. Um, and, and uh, they would be sitting on, uh, on, on the tarmac or sort of on the, on the, the baggage cart waiting for the baggage to be loaded, the equipment to be loaded. And They'd all have cigars, and I, I presume that they had brown bags, which I presume had some adult beverages in them. I didn't <laughs> get to see. Yeah. Um, and and uh, 
and everybody would just be literally on cloud nine. And then um, he would be the disc jockey for the music that was played uh, on the flight home. And uh, so you would, if you, if you had a request, you know, you'd give him the request in advance. Right. And then he'd, he'd put together the playlist. Right. And so, for example, all the coaches and, 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 and the, you know, executive staff set up front trainers, doctors. And so a lot of us were into fifties music or, or Elvis or, uh, you know, country music. So every once in a while, and one of the favorites was Folsom Prison Blues and by Johnny Cash. And so he'd come on the PA system and he'd say, this is your DJ speaking. And for all the old guys up front, here's Johnny Cash with Folsom <laughs> Prison Blues. There you go. <laughs> and then if some other player had a request, he'd have a funny jab at the player. That, that sort of Saturday Night Live Peyton that, that America got to see when he first appeared there. That was him all the time. I mean, he was that way all the time. Yeah. You know, which when you think about it is, is really a remarkable capacity to be that incredibly serious, incredibly dedicated, you know, detail oriented guy, and then be this fun, great person to be around there. There, there certainly can't be many guys who combine those traits. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. I need a great teammate. And of course, great practical joker. I've told this story many times too, but it bears repeating. Um, at Rose Homeland Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, where we trained for most of his career, um, there was a very steep hill. I mean, just a big steep hill, maybe the steepest in Indiana. That <laughs> 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 went from for Indiana, it was a mountain. That was a mountain for Indiana. Yeah, it went from the practice field uh, up to uh, the the. Uh, office where we were and cafeteria where we had our meals and and the, the dorm was near the practice field at the bottom of the hill so most everybody had had uh carts golf carts and there was a shuttle um to to get the players up and down we did certainly didn't want them climbing the hill so i come out one morning and my 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 golf cart's gone <laughs> and i said what the heck so I had to walk up the steps, not that I minded, but I was in pretty good shape, but I walked up the steps and I walked into the camp office and I said to our director of operations, Steve Champlin, hey, Steve, um, did somebody take my golf cart by mistake? It wasn't there. And there was a picture window behind his office, which looked out on a lake, on uh, literally on the campus where the kids would that would swim and so forth. One big, you know, we call it a pond probably. And in the middle of it was a float that the kids would dive off and so forth. And so I looked out and on the float was a golf cart. <laughs> so I said, okay, I know who the culprit is. Uh, so he said, uh, we'll get it in for you. So thanks. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. So practice that morning. I went down and everybody's stretching, you know, getting ready to go. And I walked through the stretching line. I stopped next to Peyton. I said, you wouldn't believe what happened. He said, what happened? <laughs> I said, uh, some jerk. And I didn't use that word necessarily. It's the word I used is probably not appropriate for a family show. But I said, some jerk stole my golf cart and, and put it on the raft in the middle of the lake. Can you believe that? And he said to me, 
That's terrible. Who would do a thing like that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't know, but he sure is a jackass. So <laughs> there you <laughs> wait, there's more. No, wait. Oh, there's more. Yes, yeah. this is not over. Oh. So we, we had somebody who worked in the broadcasting department who really thought that he was Howard Cosell, you know, Al Michaels. <laughs> and had a little bit of a, a kind of a prima donna attitude. Uh, and, and the players would, you know, make fun of him on a fairly regular basis. Because obviously, anytime you manifest any kind of an attitude around a professional football team, it is fair game. You're now, you, yeah. you are stuck with a nickname yeah. or whatever, you know, for the rest of your life. So uh, the, they, they stole his golf cart. And it ended up in the same place. I say they, because I can't pinpoint the culprits. And uh, and so he complained vociferously. He was really upset. And so same thing happened. I saw it, you know, Steve looked at it. We got it back. I went down to the field and I said to Peyton, hey, you know what? Somebody stole so-and-so's golf cart. And he said, no kidding. <laughs> I said, yeah, and he's really upset. Oh, man, he's pitching a fit. He said, isn't that a shame? <laughs> <laughs> Never cracked a smile, poker face. <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, that's him. <laughs> who, who, so who do you think, if you had to guess, so would, would Peyton actually do these pranks himself? Was, did he oh, have I'm certain of it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, who, who, would, who might help him? Oh, I mean, his henchmen. Who, who, who are his, who are his henchmen? henchmen? I'm sure, I don't know. Who, I don't know who his henchmen were. I know, but I know he was responsible. That much I know. I think. Uh, look at the O line. That, those would be the usual. Yeah, I would look to. Yes, I would look to the O line. I would maybe the backup quarterbacks. I don't know. Was there you go. Well, maybe we'll find out in the speech. It can. You never know. Well, thank it's you. It's possible. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The big reveal. The big reveal. So pay attention faster pace for the speech this year all right guys well thank you this was super fun we're going to cover some more guys in the coming weeks i think we're going to do edge next week so if you got ideas or things you want us to run through on some of the, those guys hit us up on twitter at if bill polian thank you guys thank, thank you. you hey and maybe go get vaccinated and stay safe for sure get vaccinated mask up mask up coming all right guys See you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.